1: I also work with gender-questioning teenagers and i facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues.
0: We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture.
1: Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens.
0: Artie Morty is a pseudonym for a 42-year-old Canadian gay man. We spoke with Artie today about his experiences growing up as a feminine boy. We talk about how he eventually came to terms with his sexuality as a gay man, and how evolving conceptions of gender and identity are viewed through the lens of sexual development. In this episode, Artie describes the ambivalence and ultimate self-acceptance that have shaped his identity. All right. Hello, Artie. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Hi. Hi to you both. It's so, I'm so excited to be here. And so are we to have you.
0: So we we wanted to talk to you a little bit about, um, of course, your experiences uh, with gender and sexuality and identity, and maybe you can start by telling us a little bit more about um, who you are and and how the the concept of gender has touched your life.
2: Yeah, thank you. Well, my name is Artie. That's not a, my real name, but we'll go with it. Uh, I live in Canada, in Toronto. Uh, I'm forty two. And uh, I wouldn't consider myself the most effeminate gay man in the world right now, but I have lots of feminine aspects. But as a child and growing up, I was very, very feminine <laughs> and uh, very gender nonconforming. And I got along with the girls a lot more uh, than the boys. Uh, yeah, where do you want me to start? I think I need, I need leading questions because I don't know where to go on my own.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm jumping in here. What age were you when you first remember feminine or feminine as a concept or girlish or anything (laughs) like that came into you
2: oh um I mean it was just natural for me right and I was in a pretty liberal household I had a a, I didn't have a father or any brothers I just had my mother and my sister it was the three of us so it was a me and two women or a girl and a woman um so it just was natural and there was no pressure to behave differently. But as young as two years old, I had a huge crush on, oh gosh, what is her name? Oh, one of the Charlie's Angels. <laughs> uh, oh no, I forget her name. Anyways, there was like a... She, I thought I wanted to be her more than anything. I wanted to be one of Charlie's Angels. I you?
1: a <laughs> <And, laughs> yes. That, that was reason, an arrival of femininity.
2: I know. And I, I, the first, one of my very earliest memories of childhood was there was a swimsuit model on television and she was sort of lying horizontally on the beach with her hands sort of on her hip in this sort of pose, and I had to replicate that pose as like a three-year-old, you know, I just had to do it. Mm. And I was lying in the living room floor doing the supermodel pose, (laughs) like, look at me, mom. I'm
1: a supermodel. Uh, was this celebrated in your household was this like a very how liberal or how progressive or how I,
2: I think it was just tr- it certainly wasn't I wasn't penalized in any way for this gender nonconforming behavior but it wasn't encouraged either it was just sort of I don't remember it being anything except that it was just a a, a quirk a quirk of mine <laughs> you know yeah. it wasn't encouraged but it wasn't punished either it was just there um as I got a little older, I started wanting to play with my sister's toys. And my mother uh, was a, you know, a strong feminist. So I think she didn't want me playing with violent toys. Um, oh, and my father had been in the army and he died. So my mother was very staunchly opposed to guns and weaponry. And so many of the oh, masculine wow. toys were uh, violent you know gi joe Uh was a soldier with a gun and it's all shooting people uh Uh, so she wanted me to play with more toys like lego and things like that which would have been considered i guess sort of gender neutral but i went straight for my sisters my little ponies and princesses and you know (laughs) the the pinker the better uh
0: Well, can you, can you just tell us, if you don't mind, how old were you when your father died?
2: I was two, so I, I don't have any memory. You're very him. young. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. but it was a real traumatic thing. We were a bit of a traumatized household. He had been murdered um, wow. quite suddenly. And so my mother found herself a single mother um, very abruptly. And so there was a lot of trauma in the house. Um, my mother was an intelligent; she's still alive. She is an intelligent woman. <laughs> but we were we had no money, and we were we were very poor. And it, yeah, there was just sort of a pall of sadness and trauma over the house because of you know the the shock of my father having been murdered. At uh, yeah,
1: shock. Wow. Yeah.
2: yeah. So there was a, <laughs> it was a lot back, of that. to, to Go with.
1: back a little bit to that feminine side because I'm obsessed with it. Um, oh. When you were in school, was it accepted? And
2: No, that became a big problem. Um, I was before, I mean, I kind of always knew in some subconscious level that I was gay. I don't even know how that's possible because I didn't understand concepts of homosexuality and sexuality in general. But there's this sense of this sort of, Knowing that, that I remember when my mother explained to me what a lesbian was, I was thinking in my head, I think I'm that, but a guy and I would have been six Mm. or seven, you know, Mm. I can't even explain how this could be just my adult memory, reconstructing false memories from childhood. But I seem to have always known on some subconscious level that I was gay. But when I started behaving femininely in school, it became a problem. And the boys started mocking me and calling me gay from a really young age. And this was in the eighties during the AIDS crisis. So, all the kids would say that I had AIDS, essentially, because I was so oh. girly.
1: <laughs> oh, that's wow.
2: I know. Um, it was really bad.
1: I, I'm suddenly getting really a sad picture with the, with the dad dying or being murdered, and you're suddenly on your own, and that bullying happening, which would have been really vitriolic, I'd imagine. In, yeah, in, and we, in we were this, in a yeah.
2: very rough neighborhood, too um it was it was a rough neighborhood where the kids were were pretty rough and so you know it got it was really bad <laughs> i was beaten up a lot them. and there was oh. a lot of abuse um a lot of yeah and as i grew up it became really really difficult we we had to leave toronto and move to a small town because we couldn't afford to live in the city anymore even in the suburban ghetto that i was in um and that was really shocking, because in even in the suburban sort of ghetto neighborhood I was in, it was still very multicultural and ethnically diverse, and there were some interesting people there. And then we moved to this hick town, essentially, <laughs> where everybody was really rough and really violent, and really, uh, there was no education, and there was a lot of, you know, the parents all had substance abuse problems and that kind of thing. Uh, and we were pretty smart. We, we were poor, but we were very education-focused and oriented, and... Um, we were just, I was mercilessly mocked, not just as a fag and a sissy, but also as like a brainiac, you know, somebody Mm -hmm, who mm -hmm. came from the big city. Um, Mm -hmm. it was really, really difficult. Um, yeah.
0: (laughs) You, you mentioned (laughs) that you took solace in female friendships. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about how interacting and, and, you know, making friendships with girls, um, how was that, I guess, a kind of relief for the other interactions you were having with boys who were more aggressive or bullying?
2: Yeah, I mean, it just I just felt so much more comfortable around girls. Uh, I was frightened of adult men, having not had a father figure in my life and having been beaten up so much by younger men. Uh, adult men were very, very scary to me. And adolescent boys were just too rough for me. They always wanted to fight, and push and I just wanted to you know make friendship bracelets and talk about our feelings <laughs> I don't know mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, yeah so well, I would spend time with girls and it almost felt um, what's the word it felt clandestine like you're not supposed to hang mm-hmm. out with the girls you're supposed to be hanging out with the boys mm-hmm. but I would do anything I could to go and hang out with these girls in my neighborhood you know um, but it was almost like it felt secret, like I wasn't allowed. But I just never felt better than I was just sitting around with the girls. Oh. Just you know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well I wonder what it is that drives that.
0: Well, one thing I hear sometimes from, from clients, well, clients in terms of their interactions with boys, boy clients, is that Boys can be ruthless with one another, but they tend to be a little more gentle with girls. Mm. So at least when it comes to gender dysphoria, I think sometimes boys who are experiencing gender dysphoria might have a fantasy that if I were a girl, I wouldn't be picked on so much. I wouldn't be beat up. I wouldn't be treated with such aggressiveness. Um, even though sometimes boys can infantilize girls or, you know, exclude them, that might feel safer than being the target of male aggression.
1: Hmm. Um, I, I wonder, though, because I would, from what you've described, I would say you were gender nonconforming, and any dysphoria you were having was from society, you, you were... I've, well, yeah, you I had words in I, your mouth there. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but I, I, I kind
2: of always wanted to be a girl when I was a kid, too. And it pained me a little bit being a boy. Um, but I was never, we were a household that was very sort of science-oriented, and so I it, I expressed it just by just being sad that I was a boy and wishing mm-hmm. that I was a girl, but I never went out of my way to take it any further than that, mm-hmm. you know? And I also noticed, when I would play one-on-one with other boys, they would be gentle and kind. It would be the second another boy would come mm-hmm. into the scene That's and right. they had to perform, and it, it just felt like this horrible betrayal, you know? I'd have these quiet, nice little times with boys, maybe even playing with girl toys a little bit. The second another boy shows up, they have to perform and reject me, you know? Wow. Well, yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, I, I think that still goes on now. My little boy is 11 mm. and you can see them puff up when a third boy comes. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that still goes on. Um, yeah. I, I, I wonder, was there other boys who might've turned out to be gay or certainly feminine boys in your, in your group at all
2: uh well my uh i don't in this this rural uh working class town I was living in, uh I, my neighbor was really rough and the boys were really really rough so i think if they had any proclivities they would have concealed them quite well um as we moved into our teens i left home when i was very young i was a runaway in my teens but uh before i left home um those, I mean, the boys were all sleeping with each other in their early teens, because that's what boys do. Um, and they were very rough and kind of, I don't know. <laughs> so there was like, I was the only one who wasn't sleeping with the yeah, other ones, because I, I was a real fag, right? <laughs> um, but I don't think any of them probably would have turned out to be, to be gay, or they would have concealed it very well. And another thing you have to remember is that I'm in Canada, and Canada has a real hockey culture. And hockey is a violent sport. Um, I don't know if either of you have ever watched a hockey game before, but yeah. literal fighting is part of the game, where the, there's a pause, and <laughs> the, the players literally take their gloves off and beat each other up. That's part of the game. There are literal moments where the game stops so the guys can beat the shit out of each other. And fathers will take their boys to these hockey games and cheer on, and everybody gets thrilled and excited when the guys start beating each other up. And this terrified me so much because I was getting beaten up all the time and here. It's like the national pastime is to celebrate, to take little boys and watch them watch adult men beat each other up and to celebrate this as this is, this is the Canadian identity. Um, and it just filled me with despair that like this is encouraged that this is, this is something the entire country celebrates that men beat the shit out of each other. Right. Um, yeah I think I've lost my train of thought, but that was a big thing that bothered me
0: <laughs> hmm. Did you ever express your dislike for these kinds of cultural norms um, or what were you just did you just kind of withdraw and try to retreat into your female friendships, or I guess how did you how did you deal with? the the dissonance inside of yourself that like, I really don't like these things, but here I am.
2: Yeah. I, I don't know. Depression, (laughs) but I, I, my, even my friendships with girls were pretty furtive and they were, like I said, a little bit clandestine and they were just like, you know, casual afternoons hanging out with a neighbor kind of thing. We didn't really, I didn't forge strong bonds uh, with girls because it wasn't allowed, but these were times that I cherished. So I was very solitary for most of my childhood. I didn't have any friends in school at all. I went to a school that was separate from my immediate neighborhood. So my neighborhood friends or my neighborhood community was separate from my school community. And my school was uh, sort of a little bit wealthier. Um, I got bust into the sort of privileged neighborhood. My mother was trying to give me a good education, but that just meant that I didn't fit in with anyone in school because I was so poor. (laughs) So I I had no friends at all in school, um, though I did well academically. Um, and then I'd come home to the neighborhood and all the boys would beat me up <laughs> and oh, I don't know how I dealt with it. Um, yeah, just a lot of isolation, a lot of just spending time alone in my room and being depressed.
1: Do you remember but, a moment that you realized you were gay?
2: Yeah. Um, <laughs> yep. Uh, well, I remember when puberty started kicking in and I suddenly found myself very attracted to some of the neighborhood boys <laughs> Even though they would beat me up, um, that was a thing. Um, yeah, it, it struck like a bolt of lightning, you know. Um, but I still, it was kind of the concept of being gay was I haven't quite fully processed that it applied to me. Does that make any sense? I kind of knew mm-hmm. that's something yeah. I was. We, you know, we would as the family, my mother and sister and I, we'd sit in front of the television. All, all, all the time. And if homosexuality came up in the news or uh, in a movie we were watching or something, I would panic. I would absolutely panic. Um, and I would panic and I would get very self-conscious because I didn't want anyone to see that I was panicking because that would mean they could tell that I was gay. Yes. Right? So it was just a <laughs> sheer terror. Um, (laughs) You know, that movie Philadelphia came out and it was everywhere and I was like, oh shit, you know. Why won't everybody just shut up about the gays? This is terrifying, you know.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's like your self-consciousness you you got nervous that others could see it Absolutely. because you saw yourself reflected in these characters. And then you're like, oh, no, can everyone else see that on me? Yeah.
2: The sheer terror, the sheer terror, you know, of, of being found out. I had this feeling that if anyone knew I would literally die, I would <gasps> cease to exist. It was like a terror, like a, a, an existential terror, you know that the, the, the ability for anyone to know that I was gay would lead to my actual literal demise. My You know, it was just such an impossibility uh, that anyone should ever find out. Um, and I was slowly putting it all together. Okay, I can tell that I'm gay, that I didn't quite, you know... I started keeping a diary, and I remember when I finally wrote the words, even oh. in the diary, it took me weeks, and then I finally wrote the words, I am gay, and I just, you know... <laughs> I cried oh, for days. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I was
1: hard. It
0: seems. It seems like there is a real process of very slow kind of coming to terms. You know, like there was maybe this pre-verbal sense that this is you, but it was hard to integrate that into yourself.
2: No, I love. And when then there was.
0: <laughs> well, well, it, I'm really touched by the kind of emotionality that I see, you know, unfortunately our our audience (laughs) is only listening to us, but what do you think helped you really kind of settle in with like the reality that, okay, this is who I am. And I, I don't like, did the terror like slough off on its own? Or I guess, how did you move into that?
2: place? It was very hard. It only got worse. Um, So remember I said I had no friends in school Mm. Well, yeah. um, I, I sort of formed a friendship with a classmate <clears throat> uh, in and I worked up the guts. I decided I was going to tell him that I was gay just because I needed to mm-hmm. tell someone this was going to be uh, the next step in processing it. This guy seemed nice and sweet and gentle. I didn't think he was gay. I just wanted to tell someone. And I wrote this big, long, epic letter because I was procrastinating as I was writing. I didn't want to say it, right? Mm. Um, And it was like this big thing. It was like four pages long. And I was going to hand it to him in in class. And I decided to reread it the next day before I gave it to him. And I thought, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. (laughs) This needs an editor. This thing's too long. (laughs) I took it home and I threw it under the bed where I kept all my hidden things great job, Artie. (laughs) And then I wrote a shorter version that was just, look, you know, it's nice to be your friend. I don't have a lot of friends. I really wanted to tell someone. I just thought you should know that I'm gay. And he thought he took it well. He said, that's really nice, you know? And he went to his friends and he was like, oh, there's this nerdy guy in my class. and He's just come out of the closet and told me he's gay. And they were nice about it too. They were like, oh, that's sweet. But they didn't keep it the secret. Uh, so within yeah. a day, it got out and I was an extreme nerd. Suddenly I'll come into yeah. school and everyone's calling me a faggot. And there's this sort of catwalk you have to walk through to get from one branch of the school to the next. And it's hard for nerds because they get beaten up when they cross the catwalk or they get tricked, you know, all the punks are standing there. It's like a gauntlet you have to walk through. And I went through the gauntlet and it was like I was being harassed and called a faggot. And that was it. I thought I, kn- I knew at this point I was never going to school again because it was too terrifying. Um, And I left right then and there. And I never went back to school. And I came home, and my mother and sister were there. And they said, you know, your bedroom is a pigsty. It's a mess. So we took it upon ourselves to clean your room, even under the bed. And I had just had this terror of having been, decided I was leaving school. (gasps) And they found the duraly draft of the letter under the bed. So I left home right then and (gasps) there. And I ran away.
1: What
2: age were you? I was 15.
1: Oh. Um, oh my god.
2: <laughs> yeah. So I, I, you know, I, I bummed around the food court at the local mall, and I met some stoner friends, and I discovered marijuana, and I discovered alcohol, and I stayed at this sort of crash pad for the stoner runaways, and uh, yeah, eventually I crossed the country, and I went out to Vancouver on the West coast and I panhandled for a year and slept on the streets and yeah.
0: Oh my gosh. <laughs> can, can we just go back for a second? I mean, this is quite an, an epic moment of your life that there's a crossroads there, but I, I am really curious because you had this very traumatic experience at school Yeah. where you were really ostracized and called out and ridiculed Mm-hmm. And yet, you describe that at home, mom had always had a very, I guess, at least intellectually supportive perspective on like, lesbians and gay men. So I'm wondering, did you feel as though you were going to be rejected at home as well? Or do you think your school experience was just so overwhelming that that, I guess, catalyzed your escape? I'm wondering about that.
2: You put it so well. Uh, uh, I've never experienced homophobia from my mother. Um, she had said things here and there in private in the household that props didn't align perfectly with gay rights because she didn't know that mm-hmm. I was gay, but she was not homophobic. Yeah. And uh, it was me processing my own demons that led me to run away from home. And it was more the humiliation of the whole thing. Uh, I was trying to escape the humiliation of the experience and the humiliation of my neighbors mocking me and the humiliation of being mocked. Uh, yeah, I just needed space to myself to figure out who I was. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah. But one thing that really strikes me is that you were very feminine. You were mm-hmm. what is often called pre-gay these days. Yeah, your 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 family were accepting, and yeah, you had a really really hard time in school. I can see that, and you did have you lost your dad at such a young age, but I, I think. For somebody who was so definitely 100% gay, really, all along, you had a really, really difficult path. And I think we often forget that the, even the gayest of the gayest <laughs> often have really difficult paths in accepting it.
2: Absolutely. Even and it you kind matter, of knew it, Even in, knew it. in a liberal, progressive household with supporting family, it's still going to be hard to process it because you're a minority. You know, something like 2% of men are gay. Um... It's not, it's not the expected path for any person. So it's really difficult to realize yeah. that the path that you are going to take is not going to be the path that was just sort of subconsciously or not everybody expected you to take in life. Uh, and that you're not going to be like these all, you know, these endless television shows and movies and the news there, men behave a certain way and you are not going to be like them when you grow yeah. up. It's very, yeah. very scary and very, very difficult. Yeah. And I always knew that. I always knew that there was just no role for me that, you know, on television, in the media, I couldn't find a version of me anywhere. Mm -hmm. A very girly boy who, you know, was still a boy, but, you know, got along with the girls and just wanted to be gentle.
1: (laughs) And I I know I've met like, you know, clients and other people who've had that internalized homophobia and very strong and they, 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 they almost themselves was the person that had to really overcome at the end. They had to kind of get over. They had to make friends with themselves.
2: Absolutely. It's they the hardest thing. Be somebody different. And then I think that's always going to be difficult, Even, no matter how much gay acceptance there is in the world. I feel like it's been moving forward, gay acceptance, but it's also been experiencing a bit of a rollback a little bit these days in some ways. Um, but it's always going to be difficult. So this is something everybody needs to understand is that a child who is gender non-conforming and likely gay is going to be experiencing a lot of struggle and they're going to be experiencing a lot of distress. Um, that's almost inevitable. So you really, really have to support your child in every way that you can <laughs> and help them to understand that it's okay to be themselves. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think what, what is coming up for me as I hear you talk is that right now in our culture, we have so much jargon about gender nonconformity and acceptance and LGBT rights. And I, I think that's so important. And I'm so glad we're moving in that direction. However, a lot of it feels superficial insofar yes. as there's a deep, like an existential reckoning that has to happen when the core of your being is really gender nonconforming, and i'm not talking about clothes and hair and like your aesthetic i'm talking about the fact that having visceral romantic attractions to someone of the same sex it's the most non-conforming thing you can be mm-hmm. and that's a very deep like part of who somebody is And no matter how much representation or acceptance we kind of talk about peripherally, I think there's a very deep sense of like befriending yourself that has to happen because you know that that is just statistically not typical.
2: Yeah. And we we frame it around identity. Everybody's trying on their identities and then the gay is an identity. It's not. Mm. It's a physiological reaction. If you are same sex attracted, you are going to start physiologic. You're going to have, you know, you're going to be attracted to people before you have any idea what's going on. This isn't an identity you're trying on. This is your deep, deep, you know, your animal instincts uh, telling you something about yourself. And you know, you may not be ready to identify into it, but you don't have a choice. This is very, very difficult for for young people because it's not something they choose. It's something that wells up from deep deep inside their you know primordial lizard brain
1: (laughs) I kind of think of a few things here my kind of head is spinning but like I kind of think of myself when I had like let's say I wanted to be boy and gender dysphoria and I kind of I was totally with you on the other side of the fence when you were eight and stuff and then I fancied boys without (laughs) a doubt (laughs) heavily and intensely and um I was absolutely horrified. It was my deepest, darkest secret that there was anything being fancied, if you follow me. Had I been lesbian, I, I, I would have combusted with shame. I was already combusted with shame and, and, and I was only fancying boys. As So I, I kind of think there's something about our sexual instinct. What we fancy is so private and it's like, oh my God, it's my deepest self and the idea of having to walk some sort of gauntlet across the school—they know my sexual self. I can't even breathe at the thought yeah.
2: of that. No, yeah,
1: because it, it, it goes so deep into. They know what I what I get off on, and I, you wouldn't have had that words, but that goes really to a really. We have this core of privacy that we don't easily tell each other what turns us on, and it feels such a vulnerable making thing if the three of us suddenly spilled it. Don't worry, that's not the plan. But it, <laughs> it, it it feels it feels intensely private, and I wonder is something about being gay is, is that what is being touched upon and feels so like get the hell out of my bed sheets here. This is my yeah. side. I, I do, I'm just wondering that. Yeah,
2: absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I mean, obviously, it's better now that there's more representation. Um, that is absolutely it. But I'm wondering what we can do to help these young boys and girls. And one thing is to give them as many role models as possible that might help them to see that other adults have been through this and that, you know, they're not alone on this journey that other people have gone through it too. um, to see something, to have a, a light at the end of the tunnel, to see adults who are gay and gender non-conforming. And so that they can say, "Oh, I can be like that." This is this is this is going to be a harrowing journey, but I can see I can see at least what it looks like. I can see what the end goal is. Does that make yeah. any sense? There were no role models for me, um, and even when I did come to terms with the fact that I was gay, I thought that meant that I was going to have to adopt a gay persona. You know, I wanted to. I was a science geek. You know, I wanted to be a scientist, but I thought that wasn't allowed. I thought literally. Uh, it's it's hairdresser or fashion designer or you know just goofy neighbor who doesn't even have a job. They're just a funny neighbor who snaps his fingers and helps you buy purses. You know these are people the yeah. that's uh, so I I tried to get into fashion for some reason. I give zero. <laughs> but I thought, like, what else can you do? Right? These are the these are the these are the roles that are available to you as a homosexual man who's very flaming. Right? Wow. <laughs> it took me a long time to realize. It was like literally in my mid-twenties when I was like, God, I, can I go back into science? So I started like reading popular science magazines and delving into physics blogs and things like that just to get it out of my system. Um, you know, this wish that I could go back and become a physicist. Yeah.
1: Oh, well, it feels like
0: such a, a real kind of coming of age story because, I mean, we happen to be talking about your sexuality, but we're really talking about... Uh, accepting who you are and also resisting kind of the the narratives about what that's supposed to mean about you right and that's a very fundamental aspect of growing up i mean we all have to do that because we all do have a certain body we all have a certain sex, we all have a certain culture, we all live in a certain place, we're all, you know, different educational groups or whatever. So we all have to kind of come to terms with, well, what does that mean about me? And do I get to define my own story? And I, I hear you saying that for a while, because of your sexuality, you had a perception of what that relegated you to, but you somehow broke open that barrier and just got to figure out who you are as an individual, not so much just as your group identity.
2: Yeah. And unfortunately it happened far too late. That I wish that, you know, for young people these days who are struggling with their identity and with their sexuality and with their gender nonconformity, I wish we could give them so many more role models and show them that you can be gender nonconforming and you can still be a physicist, you know? You can be if you know, flaming effeminate boy and that doesn't foreclose any opportunities for you. You can be anything you want to be. And I just, we need to show them more people a like that.
1: A lot of people would argue that we have, but I feel like one of you said earlier, it feels very lip service-ish. Insofar as we talk about mental health and we remove the stigma, we talk about progressive society and LGBT rights, etc., And yet still I have teenage clients who are seemingly it feels where you are. They cannot be gay. They can be anything, but they cannot be gay. They are just resisting. Everybody around them is ostensibly accepting. They themselves just can't make that leap for themselves. Yeah. And I
2: wonder if it's, there isn't proper gay representation in the media. Gay characters are still singled out as gay characters and they're a type, you know, they're a stereotype in the media. Um, there should be just a gay bus driver who happens to be gay. You know, this kind of thing. Just people who where gayness isn't front and center of their who they are in the media. Uh, I think young people need to see more of that. That it's a thing that is incidental, but it doesn't have to dominate their lives,
1: perhaps. Absolutely. You know? I think that feels key. Is that somewhere where a shallow reading of queer theory kind of touches upon that? <laughs>
2: I don't know. I think queer theory, yes. If we queer everything, then everything is better or something like that. But that's, that's not quite true. Homosexuality is only ever going to be 2% of the population. So it's going, it's a small number of people. Um, So you can't, handle that by making everybody queer you know they're trying to expand the numbers instead of expanding the understanding does that make any sense
0: yeah oh that's good can you expand (laughs) on that that was a really really interesting framing
2: well this is something that uh, you have to come to terms with when you're attracted to men that 98 percent of men are not attracted to you back on the basis of the fact that you're a man you know they want women they want girls and that's very very frustrating and very upsetting. All your crushes, everyone you see, they are not interested in you because you are a boy. Um, and vice versa, if you're a girl who's attracted to girls, right? They, they're not attracted to other girls. So it's just going to be a constant sense of rejection. <laughs> and I think queer theory was a little bit trying to like, there's a resentment in culture that everybody's straight and we're not. Let's make everybody queer. Let's make everybody a little bit you know
1: <laughs> that's Gayer. not gonna
2: happen that's that's just uh it's straight conversion therapy
1: <laughs> uh, tell me are, are all gay i i forgive my ignorance are all gay boys as feminine as you i know some of them don't seem to be or
2: well it's so you funny say, yeah you
1: yeah you there's this the-
2: book called the man who would be queen uh it was written by michael bailey are you familiar with this book yeah, uh, yeah. So you two are nodding. You, the people listening can't see it, but you're like, yes, you can see. You know, you're both <laughs> good. Good. Uh, a real insight I found in that book was when the author was saying that almost all gay men, no matter how gender nonconforming they are or aren't, if you were to quiet privately ask their mothers what they were like as little boys, almost invariably the mothers are going to say they were extremely girly. That was a little girl, you know. Um, so little. Most gay men are a lot more gender non-conforming in childhood than they remember, perhaps even. And it's almost like they learn to perform masculinity as they grow up. And they learn to adapt themselves into the roles that society expects for men. And part of that is when you're sexually attracted to males, you're sexually attracted to masculine behavior, and so you want to apply some of that onto yourself, right? You know what's hot. (laughs) You're going to do it, right?
1: (laughs) I'm oh going to grow God. a beard because
2: I find beards sexy in other men. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I was very gender nonconforming and I think, but I don't feel like I'm particularly gender nonconforming these days. I'm pretty flaming but, you know, I'm not singing show tunes every day. At least... You, you
1: look, you could, like, <laughs> could dive into a... <laughs> from
2: show tunes Okay fair fair <laughs> But like uh, there are there are gayer men Than me in the world uh, And there are yeah. like less gay Seeming <laughs> men than me uh, But I was extremely Gender nonconforming And you have to remember that a lot of men who are gay But uh, don't seem particularly Effeminate as adults Probably were also very effeminate Young boys I wonder why um, they are Yeah,
1: I, well, I wonder what that is Well,
2: it's got something to do with the sort of bell curve distribution of natural masculinity or femininity in males and females. You know, there's a tendency for males to have more masculine traits, whatever those are in the society we live in. And there's a tendency for females to have more feminine traits, but there's, it's not a strict, it's, it's a, it's an overlapping double bell curve. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it just seems the further you are on the feminine traits, the more likely you are to be same sex attracted. Um, I don't know why. And
1: yet there are, <laughs> I know feminine men, and I'm sure you do, who are heterosexual and vice versa. Yeah. They, they definitely are a, a cohort.
2: It's almost like there are a million traits in a man and in a woman. And some of them get sort of switched into the feminine tendency, and some of them get switched into the masculine tendency. And if you're gay, that's one of the traits. But effeminate people have more of the feminine traits switched on. Mm-hmm. And you can almost look at homosexuality as a bit like a psychological intersex condition or something like that, you know that like you your sexuality is oriented the way a typical person of the other sex would be um Does that make sense?
1: I think it there's does, even been some
2: brain scans that have sort of supported that a little bit, you know
1: it makes me think mm-hmm. if 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 gay men are attracted to masculine men then most Find that there, there's a. I think I've, I've heard you say this, Sasha, yesterday or something. That if the gay man is attracted to a masculine man, well, then what are we going to do with all the feminine gay men that are attracted to the masculine? It feels like a mathematical problem here.
2: <laughs> that,
0: well, that where thing. that came from was just my, my understanding, and I think me, maybe even Michael Bailey talked about this in the Man Who Would Be Queen. Is that the, the market of you know, most dateable gay men are the ones who are very masculine because gay men are attracted to masculine traits. So is that, is that true? I mean, your experience, and I guess we should also ask, would you say that you are part of like a thriving community of gay men, or are you still kind of um, isolated? Because that makes a big difference, I would imagine, in how you experience your, yourself in the, in the sense of a community or as kind of a lone wolf.
2: Yeah, um, a few things to unpack there. I think so that book, The Man Who Would Be Queen, Michael Bailey posited that most gay men are sexually attracted to masculinity in other men, but they themselves tend to not have very masculine traits. So the very effeminate gay men might feel like they're they're sort of out of the market a little bit. Um, But I thought that was a weak point in his book. Cause I don't quite see it playing out like that in the real world. It's a little more complicated sort of in theory, that makes sense. But in practice, I see a lot of effeminate gays, you know, men really like them. Um, <laughs> they, they're not, they're not doing so bad. They're doing great. I've um,
1: that, sure. yeah,
2: I, I have a bartender at a gay bar. So I, and it's the kind of a date bar, like a singles bar, like a, it's a first date kind of place. Uh, so I see, I see these states happening all the time and, uh, yeah, the 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 very ish gays are doing just fine.
0: <laughs> oh, good! Glad to hear that.
2: <laughs> but I don't feel like a lone wolf right now. No, I am in i I'm in the gay community very explicitly right now as a bartender at a gay bar. Um, yeah, I kind of avoided it for a long time. That's another thing you see with gays the gays and lesbians these days, but gay men especially is this total rejection of of gay culture. Um, in the nineties, you know, the gay village was a ghetto. Most big cities had a ghetto for gays in the inner city and there would be, and it would revolve around bars and bar culture. So there'd be 20 to 30 gay bars in a big city. And now there's two or three and the villages, the neighborhoods have, uh, collapsed essentially because most gays have integrated themselves into society at large and really don't want to participate in gay bar culture and gay lifestyle culture anymore Mm. and a lot of times you see people explicitly rejecting it uh on the dating apps when men are describing themselves so often you'll see them say things like oh not not into gay culture you know (laughs) yeah
1: and were you not half arguing for that when you were saying in the media the gay bus driver (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, it's right. Uh I, I that's exactly true. So there's a push and a pull there because I think it's important to have a gay village and a gay community where you can be surrounded by people yeah. like you. But I think it's also important to just be able to integrate into society at large and to just live your life as a person. I think you have to have the opportunity for both. You have the you, you have to have places where you can go and be around your other people, especially because you're going to be a minority your whole life. You know, you're going to be mm-hmm. surrounded all day by Friends and family and people in the media who are not gay. So you need places to go where you can be with people like you. Yeah. Um, It's so, so important for your mental health. Um, But you also need to be able to get along with everyone else. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: That's so interesting, because even though this has nothing specifically to do with sexuality, I really hear that as a parallel for my experience being like a person in kind of two cultures. My my parents are from Egypt, but I grew up in Canada and the US. And I also feel like there's there's some kind of comfort that I can take when I'm hanging out with other people who understand our, our cultural background, our food, our music, that kind of thing. But it's also so important to integrate well with the rest of the world so there's this kind of back and forth that i find is is a parallel with a lot of different types of marginalized quote-unquote experiences that there has to be a place for both
2: absolutely absolutely the balance i didn't know you'd spent time in canada on as an aside
0: i was born in montreal oh wow i didn't know that In the freezing (laughs) freezing cold tundra (laughs) and now you're, you're in
2: texas aren't you
0: Yeah, it's pretty hot over here. (laughs) Uh,
2: We did the opposite. Uh, My family is from Texas, but I grew up in Canada, so.
0: (laughs) Oh, look at us. We've swapped. (laughs) (laughs) I want to go back to something that feels really important to me because you brought up representation, which is very important. And also, I think we have this perception that. If there's adequate representation, nobody would have ambivalence about their own sexuality. Mm -hmm. And I, I work with young people who are questioning their gender or questioning their sexuality. And sometimes if I suspect that a client might be gay or lesbian and I try to talk with them about that if they have any ambivalence about it then they interpret that ambivalence as proof that they're not that thing mm. so if if somebody has same sex attractions and i say well could it be that you might be gay and they say well no cuz that idea just like i get kind of skin crawly about it I, it just creeps me out mm-hmm. then that means they couldn't possibly be gay mm-hmm. but but you're kind of describing that there is a lot of ambivalence that comes with realizing that you have Um, something about you that does make you different than the average. I'm wondering if you can just talk about that, because I I do sense that representation alone can't take away that individual journey of self-acceptance. What do you think? I
2: think so. And I think, I mean, personally, I always want to hammer the point home that it's not something you choose. Young people are being told that the world is their oyster and they can choose their path or whatever, and that's great. But this one, you don't get to choose. It gets foisted on you if you're gay, you know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) It gets foisted on you before you have any sense of who you are. It happens at such a turbulent time when your sexuality Mm -hmm. emerges. Um, Yeah. So it's, it's always going to be a struggle because you don't have a choice. You can't choose it. You can't say, no, I don't want to be that. It's, you know, it's, it's imposing itself on you. Um, So that's something that's sort of across purposes with the general way we want to teach kids. We want to teach kids that you can do whatever you want and you can be whatever you want and you can, you know, uh, but this is—you have to teach kids also that they have to accept who they are. You have to accept facts about yourself um, and celebrate them, um, but that you don't have a choice in them. And that I think is is not is a lesson that's maybe a little too nuanced um, for a lot of parents. You know is what there, I mean?
1: Is there a human aspect of when you're ten, twelve, 10, thirteen, fourteen? I don't know that you you're slightly you're horrified by sex. And you're getting sexual feelings.
2: Yeah, and sex is scary, and I didn't even understand it. You know, I, under, I the mechanics of gay sex I did not comprehend when I was. You know, <laughs> it's embarrassing, mm-hmm. but I was like, does one penis go inside the other penis? <laughs> no, like you stick it in the little hole at the tip. Like I did literally. No wonder you were. Get- you were terrified <laughs>
0: for good reason. <laughs>
2: i literally thought that you know i'd have sexual fantasies in my 12 year old brain and it would evolve (laughs) (laughs)
0: like a corn
1: dog kind of situation (laughs) i wonder does every whether they're they're hetero or homosexual do they do they have that slightly icky creepy dark view
2: yeah, sex. but I also wonder whether that's different now that we're in a, such a with the internet, when young people are exposed to a lot more sex than a we lot were more in porn, ours.
1: a lot more exactly sex. So I, I that must be terrifying. Better.
2: Yeah, because then suddenly, because uh, pornography on the internet is so exaggerated and extreme, um, that must terrify children even more of their sexual impulses. Especially women and girls, because pornography is just brutal to women and girls. Um, yeah, and I can see why so many girls who are lesbian would be terrified of being lesbians and find it appalling, because lesbian pornography is not for lesbians; it's for straight men, and it's it has nothing nothing like a real lesbian relationship, from what I've heard. <laughs>
0: I think it's tricky because on one hand, you know, we we recognize that in the innocence of childhood, kids can come up with a lot of false conceptions of what sex is. Like, for example, your story about the two penises, like that's a terrifying imagination. But it's also it, it can be a lot safer in the kind of recesses of a child's brain than showing children really graphic, violent pornography. So it's like, where is the healthy middle ground where we try to create somewhat of a realistic picture about sexuality, but we want to leave some, some things to the imagination because we, we all figure things out as we go. I mean, I don't believe that kids should be left in the dark about sexuality, but I also think there is gotta be some undiscovered that you and your partner kind of fumble through together in, in in the context of a safe, Young adult or teenage relationship that just telling kids every single <laughs> kind of biological detail about everything <laughs> kind of takes the mystery away in a in a sense too right it's, it. a bit, it's a bit tricky because we want to make sure kids are educated and they don't hurt themselves, and we also don't want to turn it into a very clinical medicalized thing
1: either.
2: Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, completely. Yeah, uh,
1: I think we have, we're nowhere. I don't think we've got anywhere on that one. I think we're getting somewhere, although you disagree with me, Artie, on representation, and I, I bow to you because you'd notice it more. Uh, uh, for, you know, for gay representation and, let's say, movies and stuff, I would have thought we maybe progressed a little bit, but we're nowhere in being able to handle how to feed children information so it's not too fast and it's not too slow and it's not pornographic but it also leaves a little to the imagination. Are we asking too much of ourselves? I, I I, really feel like we could do a whole review on how the hell to talk about sex between 10 and 20. Cause it's, <laughs> it's an absolute mess at this stage. It seems. Yeah.
2: True. Yeah. I mean, gosh, who knows? Uh, yeah. There have been so many attempts to go too far, you know, like in the seventies during the sort of gay liberation and free love and sexual liberation, people just really veered off course uh, trying to expose children to too much sexuality. Um, you know, we can't go that route, but we definitely need to teach kids about sex and healthy sexuality and, and not make it too clinical. Exactly. Yeah.
1: May I ask what age were you around about when you kind of came to terms with I'm gay and that's okay.
2: It was, it was, uh, 16, I suppose. Yeah. When I was like out there panhandling and hanging out and discovering gay villages and big cities and, uh, that's when I was like, okay, this is a thing. It became almost like a punk rock thing. Yeah, you know, um, I started listening I've to heard. a lot of the. You know that band, The Smiths.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: A lot of teen angst and a lot of closeted lyric lyrics about being angry right. and smart and in the closet. <laughs> and I just I wore it, it like so a hot. like a badge. It suddenly became something to be proud of. I'm <laughs> an outsider. You know, I'm a I rebel with a cause, it. man. You know.
0: <laughs> also. Speaking of, you know, in the in the last kind of chunk of our time together, something I'd love to touch on with you is that you know, you have you have kind of taken a personal journey into investigating what the current climate is like for young LGBT teenagers. I know you've talked about that a little bit on your own YouTube channel and your podcast. I wonder knowing what you know, if you were 13, 14, 15 today, How do you think the climate of discussing issues around gender and sexuality would have landed on you? How would that have impacted your trajectory?
2: Uh, It frightens me, to be honest, because I have 100% certainty that had I grown up in today's climate, I would have interpreted these feelings of gender nonconformity and this same-sex attraction and not wanting to be that. uh, I would have identified as a transgender girl. You know, there's just no question. And I would have and that not necess, that might not necessarily have been a bad thing, except that I would have been locked into it. Because these days, the protocol is to once you identify out of your sex, once you're trying on the other sex, there's this sort of political assumption that that means that's 100 percent what you are. And we have to do we have to lock you into it as quickly as possible to help you. Uh, so that frightens me. And it frightens so many gay men. And women, I just, you know, the conversations you hear when you're a gay bartender, it's the same story over and over again. People saying, gosh, if I had grown up, if I was a kid in today's climate, there's no question that I would have ended up having a sex change before I was an adult. And I'm really glad that I didn't, (laughs) you know, but I can really understand why kids would would uh, take all their gender nonconformity and take their same sex attraction and interpret that as an alternative gender identity uh, because that seems to be the only way that society can really cope with gender nonconformity and same sex attraction these days is to interpret it as gender identity you know
0: i've I've heard some gay adults who maybe aren't as kind of embroiled in these debates say, that's ridiculous. Like it was clear to me that I was gay. Why would a young trans person be confused? That's just another way to dismiss them. So for anybody who's listening that may not be familiar with what Mm. elements you're talking about, what is it that would have pushed you into a trans identity or perhaps confused your path of development for people who may not be aware? What is happening right now?
2: Well, the honest truth is if I had been told that there was a possibility to be a girl, I would have taken Mm. that because it was hard to be a boy. It's a it's a rite of passage to figure out that you're a boy and to go. You have to go through it and it is going to be hard no matter what. So if you're given an exit door, uh, you're going to take it, right? A lot of effeminate boys, it's going to be hard to figure out how to be a boy. It's going to be hard to learn to get along with the boys. It's going to be hard to get over your fear of adult men, like I did, but you have to do it. (laughs) And you'll be better for it. That exit door to just say that you're a girl, it's not, um, I don't, you know, I think for some people that's the right, uh, path, but for many of us, it's not. Uh, it was a bit of a struggle figuring out that I was a guy. But by my teens, it it just felt like I felt whole as a man because I am a man. You know, <laughs> that's who I am. Um, uh, so it's a false exit. This idea that you can you can you can claim that you're really a girl when you're not one and claim a transgender identity. But I think why a boy would feel that way. Maybe a lot of these adult gay men who think it's crazy don't remember the, how non-conforming they were as kids. Maybe they don't remember. Maybe we should ask their parents how, what they were like as kids. <laughs> you know, call this. If a, if a gay man says, I don't know what you're talking about, call his mom and say.
1: Call his mom."
0: <laughs> I'm
2: so what was he like as a boy? She'll be like, he was a little girl. He was so girly. You know,
1: <laughs> yeah, I I'm very sad that there's there's an, almost a split now in, in the gay community where some people say, "No, I knew I was gay, and I don't know what Artie is talking about," and the other side who say, "Yeah, no, I was very gender ambivalent, and I grew into my 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 um, identity as a gay man or a gay woman or lesbian," um, and I, I I wonder, would they? Or are we missing something? It would be really good if we could get somebody on the show who disagrees.
2: Right. Well, I mean, not all gay men are gender nonconforming as children, but a lot more are than they remember. Uh, But yeah, there are certainly gender typical men who are also same sex attractive. So maybe for them, their idea of conflating gender identity with sexuality is alien to them because they were not gender nonconforming. So they didn't really see gender as any part of it. Perhaps.
1: Oh, like uh, uh, exceptions to the rules, like myself, because I had gender dysphoria and I didn't end up being lesbian. So it's, it's yeah, the the exception of maybe so because yeah. some gay men specifically seem to be so absolutely convinced that there is a massive difference between a little boy who is feminine and a pre-gay little boy.
2: Yeah, um, I wonder about that. When I started talking about this issue. And I made a video where I was pointing out that there tends to be a correlation with extreme gender nonconformity and same-sex attraction in young people. That very young boys who are very, very effeminate and experience dysphoria over it and distress like I did um, are much more likely to be same-sex attracted. But I always made it clear, not all men who are same-sex attracted were effeminate as children, but they were more likely to have been. And not all children who were very effeminate grew up to be same-sex attracted, but they were more likely to be. So there's an overlap there, but not a 100% correlation. But the pushback I got from gay men, the suggestion, how dare you suggest that gays are effeminate? How dare you suggest <laughs> that I'm effeminate in any way? I'm so sick of the sissy stereotype. I like, you know, brewskis and football, you know. How <laughs> dare you? You know, I'm so sick of that. Uh there's an, an element of internalized homophobia there, you know, mm. a lot of men, they've come to terms with the fact that they're gay, but they're still having a really, they're scared of the idea that that suggests that they might not be as, uh, as masculine. <laughs> so I think a so lot of these men, when they see these effeminate gays, they're perfectly happy to, uh, assume that they'd be better off having sex changes and living as transgender women.
1: <laughs> so they're, they're almost you know? homophobic. They're, they're phobic of their feminine sides.
2: That's a great uh, way of putting it. Yes, uh, absolutely. And you see that in the dating scene too. One of the most common things that men are looking for is masculine men. Mask for mask is what they say. I'm a manly man. I'm looking for a manly man. Um, That's
0: what I was saying earlier. Yeah,
2: but they're the feminine men do <laughs> find partners too. You know. Yes, yes, uh, they yes. do. They do just. They do great. But there are a lot of men who are just like, no, I don't. I don't want any of that. You know.
1: <laughs> oh my god it, it feels really that like you know how many years is it since it's been you know what's the word decriminalized and legalized and things feels like we're really in the early days really in the early days yeah, yeah of it's any sort of understanding of how somebody might evolve happily to be gay
2: Yeah, like, it's true. We've decriminalized it. Everything's off the books now. Um, But there's still the social aspect of being gay that is is still such a puzzle. Um, Yeah, because it ties into gender and sex, you know? Ties into what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. Um, And, yeah, I just find it very scary that the way we're interpreting this as a society now, uh, by assuming that everybody can just have a sex change if they they're not comfortable with how they fit into these social roles that's i just find that just not healthy in the long run you know men you know for some people that's that would be the best thing for them i, I don't dispute that but for these young people who are just figuring out all this stuff god it breaks my heart you know
1: because there might be foreclosing other options.
2: Yes, that's right. And I can understand it must be so hard. If you're a parent and you have a distressed gender nonconforming child, um, you want to do something. The hardest thing to do as a parent is to do nothing, right? You have to act. And you want to help your child's distress as quickly as possible. And when everyone's saying the way to do that is to affirm that they're uh, transgender and a member of the opposite sex. Um, will help the child perhaps in the short run, and it will help you to feel better, like you're doing something. But what you're really doing is just, uh, yeah, I think you're closing off opportunities in the future, and the long-term battles that a transgender person is going to have are going to be much harder than the short-term struggles of fitting in uh, to your sex, you know? Uh, and you can really see this. Uh, it's it's tragic and sad because a lot of... Um, a lot of people who are transgender adults and who did transition and for whom it benefited them, they don't see that a lot of these kids uh, probably aren't going to benefit in the long run from transition and from being affirmed as transgender children, you know?
1: Yeah, we're right in the middle of it. So we're going to see how it all pans out, I suppose. That'd be right. Yeah,
2: it's very scary to talk about this stuff, isn't it? Um, it is. It Um
1: its Well,
0: part of the reason we wanted to do this podcast is just because these are really important issues. And I think many of us see what's going on and have thoughts about it. But people are generally pretty nervous to discuss their opinions. That's right. So we wanted to give just a voice to to just kind of concerned citizens or average people or therapists and other professionals who Who have been watching this and, you know, I think it's been so nice to hear how your personal experience, your lived experience in your body has informed your kind of take on what's happening right now. And perhaps you have some insight into some of these ideas, uh, perhaps being a way to derail some young people's development, because that's really what I am taking away from this
2: conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um Yeah, there's that famous actor Rupert Everett, British actor. Do you remember him? Yeah. Talk- yeah. He's talked about his extreme gender nonconformity in his childhood too. He's an out gay man and uh he has a really interesting he was a very very feminine boy who kind of ad- a really role played as a girl for much of his childhood until his teens. When puberty kicked in, and he was like, Oh, wait, I'm a gay man.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But he has some interesting
2: uh, takes on it, too.
1: He really talks about it very eloquently, actually, Mm -hmm. and very well and extensively. My big takeaway from this is that we really have to leave room in society for the feminine boys, the masculine girls, and they, they need to have a place much stronger and much more space for that. Mm-hmm. So, so that they can um just be without agonizing that they're different, that,
2: yeah, I'm thinking you know, of it's... my clandestine friendships with girls, they shouldn't have had to have been clandestine, you yeah. know, yeah,
1: yeah,
0: and just to leave room for the fact that struggling to become yourself is hard, mm-hmm. It is hard.
2: It, no matter what. It's a part of being human, you know. That's right. But these are things you have That's to right. do. You have to. We don't like pooping, but we got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just Parts of being a human That's being. the
0: perfect <laughs> way to <laughs> this podcast. go the no well, high. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Thank
1: you very, very well, much for speaking to
0: me. Yeah, it's been really great to have you. Thank you so much for coming on.
2: Thank you. Oh, it's been a wonderful pleasure. Thank you so much, both of you. It's it's an honor.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by Rhyme, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. Rhyme is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit RethinkIME.org
1: to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes. And subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash pod.
0: Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.